Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Get right into it. All right. So why don't we do the intros from Alex and then we'll go to Gordon and we'll one of you guys pick the topic you want to start with and we'll jump right in. Okay. All right. Uh, Alex, you want to go first? Yeah. My name's Alex. That's uh, that's about all you need to know right now. <laughs> You're in the army. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, Tr- Trishank would claim. Yeah. Uh, my name is Gordon. Uh, I'm a college student, so I tried to pick topics that I would actually have some skin in the game and like be able to talk about. And uh, yeah, so just a disclaimer. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Welcome to Risky Conversations. Uh, um, let's thanks get for started. Us. Oh, no worries. It's been uh, it's been a while since we got this all coordinated. So, Gordon, notice that you want to discuss something very near and dear to my heart which is the concept of atheism oh yeah yes yes i would yeah so are you are you an atheist i was an atheist i am no longer an atheist okay yeah so we went through the whole procedure so there's a story behind it but yours is more interesting than mine so let's hear your end of it well we'll see about that all right maybe maybe it ends up being some because because i've talked to other atheists who have become religious or spiritual whatever and and it's it's been pretty similar but anyway, uh, so let's see. I am Chinese, and so if most people who apparently don't really know this, uh, mainstream Chinese thought is generally atheist. Like China is one of the most atheist countries. So my parents are agnostic atheists, pretty much. So I was raised as an atheist, and uh, though I did attend a Catholic preschool, uh, over time the idea of God kind of faded away from me, and I became more you know, atheist, existential, I, I was more into, like, science and progress and all, all that jazz, and, uh, let's see, so, so I started, uh, getting really into philosophy, and I'd question a lot of things, obviously, you know, existential crises, and just, just wondering, what's the meaning in anything at all, if there's no God, if, if, you know, if, are we just a bunch of, a lump of cells moving around on the planet Earth, spinning around mm. in the universe, okay. uh, so, I'd read a lot about philosophy, and then I, I got into like Kierkegaard and, and all these other guys and, and Nietzsche, and reading all of these different perspectives, and it made me realize that atheists aren't so much closer to truth as religious people do, even even uh, fundamentalist religious people, because no one can say whether there's a god or not, and this is you know like a common question. Like, so the next step is obviously agnosticism. Uh, where I wasn't sure and I didn't really care. So for a long time I was agnostic. And then I read The Black Swan by Taleb mm. when I was around 17. And I was like, and, and it, he, he so shook my view of the world and everything I believed in and reshaped it. And then I got to a point in the book when he said he was Greek Orthodox Christian. And that, that just surprised me because reading his book, you'd think Taleb who is contrarian, who stands up against large dogmatic thought and institutions, 
actually happens to be religious and is a part of a, one of the biggest religions in the world. So, so that, that's like surprising. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Mm. So I, you know, I got curious and I, I started like reading everything he wrote online and looking online and stuff like that to see what, what he was saying about religion. And I found out he gave this talk uh, at this religious conference uh, with against Sam Harris and a bunch of these other atheist thinkers and whatnot. And he basically walked up on stage and he was like, you people don't know what religion is about. Like religion is not about belief. Religion is about like trust. Um, and, and he went on this whole speech about how religion has been largely misunderstood by the modern world, uh, which has led to the rise of atheists. Um, because, because, you know, people take what's said in the scriptures literally and they ended up extrapolating a lot of thoughts from that and then creating all this crazy fundamentalist stuff. And of course, you're going to have an atheistic reaction to that. Like, who wouldn't? Right. So, and so as soon as he said that, and then he brought in, all, obviously, like the heuristics religion has, like how religion has uh, fasting and everything and that the stuff like that, that has actually benefited humanity and all that stuff. So, so I was like, that, that really got me thinking. And, and I started to think, religion as not as like just believing in god and the supernatural but it's also a model for understanding the world you know mm. and it's a model that's been around for a long time through tinkering uh through finding what works for 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 society and what doesn't uh right and 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 once i got into that idea i started thinking about myself and i think wait so what is what am I working off of? Because I, I don't have any culture to go back to. So, so then I started asking my parents and my family, like, do we have any Christ, like family background in Christianity or maybe Taoism or, or something Chinese? But they said, no, not really. Like, we, we, like after the Cultural Revolution, like people started following Mao and all this stuff and, and they, they saw religion as, as something that was trying to brainwash people and, and they didn't like that. And so they got rid of all that, that culture. So I, I really came off into a clean slate into the world, mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and I was like, okay, so I don't really have something to go back to, then what, what, what do I do? Because I don't want to stay, you know, on this clean slate, like atheism forever. I mean, it's, it's really, really dull. Because, because like, it's like right. sterile information. Everything is sterile. So, so you, mm -hmm. you don't know how something fits with another. And, and uh, so, so I decided, you know what, since I'm American and since I'm used to living in America and being around Christians, I should check out Christianity. And mm. eventually, I, that brought me to orthodoxy. And I have been uh, exploring orthodoxy ever since. And I am soon going to be baptized. Right now, I'm, I'm still preparing for that and reading some books. But I'm working with my godmother and my, my priest uh, to be baptized. Oh, I see. So well, that's a fascinating story. But the first question I have for you is, if you were looking for a church, what, why, why didn't you pick the Church of Scientology? I mean, you could have been hanging out with uh, all the celebrities and movie stars. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> that's true. I could have been Tom Cruise's like best man. No, I don't right? know. I, because, because like what I was saying earlier about like religion being uh, the main point of religion is how long it's lasted, because that means how much tinkering it's done and how much mm. uh, vibrancy and culture and time-tested uh, uh, principles and rituals that it contains. 
Scientology right. and all this modern like BS has been around for only a very small sh- amount of small period. And that, so if anything, that means that they've just taken a lot of sterile information and just gathered it together in like a few decades and sold it to the public. Like I'm sure a lot of religions started that way, but only the ones that have survived have managed to evolve and change over time. So, so even if Christianity started that way, it is now completely different. It has now become more matured and solidified. So how do you differentiate between sterile and non-sterile information? How do you know if somebody's feeding you sterile not noise? Okay, so what I mean by like sterile information is like, um, let me think. Uh, it's it's like 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 you have math, like like you have a lot of just information in general. But you don't you we you know we're humans, so humans attach emotions to things to understand them. That's why we remember stories a lot better than we remember like a calculus textbook, right? So a calculus textbook would be sterile information. It's objective, it's factual, it's concrete, but without application, there is no color to it. Right. It's just sterile. You just learn, mm. you know, like learning in class versus doing something when you're doing mm. something, you're you're attaching. So you're associating it with different things. Right. And including mm. your emotions, too. So that's that's what I mean by sterile. So so like science, science is perfect for sterile information. That's how we gather objective data. That's how we analyze the environment, how we find out how things work. But if you want to know the why of things, why are we here? Why all that stuff that that, you know, that's something that science can't handle. But Religion at least gives us solves that existential thing for us. We, we were able to operate with a bit more, you know, enjoyment in life. You know, you don't attach, mm. you know, you don't find enjoyment from sterile information. You find enjoyment from your association with your emotions. You know, like love and and all that stuff. I see. And so, so correct my misperceptions, but I was always under the influence that the Chinese culture was more Confucius in nature, even if it wasn't protect, particularly religious that there was elements of Confucianism melded into the uh, Chinese brand of um, revolutionary thought. Is that completely way off base? Was I no, 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 you're, you are, you know, that's right. That's, that's completely right. Yeah, but I, okay, that's a personal thing. I don't really like Confucianism. I have a lot of problems with Confucianism uh, in general. Uh, I, it, part of it is the idea that the child is the extension of the parent, which has led to a whole toxic kind of culture where you know I have friends they they want to do all these they want to be someone else but their parents have them go through med school or have them do all these you know uh traditional Asian you know stereotype career paths because Mm. the child is the extension of the parent it's what the parent wants and I think that that it's good for a social order but it's really unhealthy on the individual well, I always thought that was a curious thing because if, if everybody's child was a doctor, we wouldn't have any patients, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that's that's an interesting, like you know, there, there's p- parallels between what you're talking about and what I've experienced. But Alex, what are your what are your takes on these matters? So, <clears throat> just today, I was uh, thinking, thank God I'm in America, and not. <laughs> uh, uh, because I, I, I visited my parents and, you know, I helped them with some stuff. And then, you know, they, they started driving me crazy. And uh, I was thinking, I was imagining if, you know, um, I were still, you know, my family were still in the Soviet Union, if it still existed, and I had to live in commune housing with them, you know, they, they would always just drive me crazy. So, yeah, I, I helped them already with all the, the stuff I needed to and helped them with whatever errands. And I just decided to leave earlier today. And um, 
also I, I started, I signed up for Uber and Lyft and, uh, mm. I, I picked up some people. I just do it just, you know, basically like on my way between New Jersey and Philadelphia or New Jersey and New York city, you know, I just pick people up on the way. So it'll pay for the gas money. Of course. Um, of course. But yeah, I, I agree with, uh, pretty much everything that Gordon says, you know, we, we, I've already talked to him personally or, you know, with, uh, with yeah. friends uh on these matters and uh yeah he's a he's a good kid he's going places (laughs) (laughs) so we're buying the stock at the we're buying the stock low and early are we (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) no you guys might be buying it at the peak right now (laughs) (laughs) well that's a whole different conversation me and alex are gonna have that inside trading right here only time can be the judge (laughs) of course of course it's true well so so i'll give you i I do want to add yeah, go One for it. Thing. Uh, from a musical aspect, mm. Orthodox Christianity has uh, had a music continuously sung for the past, uh, I don't know, over a thousand years. I can say that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, it's probably longer, but as far as I've confirmed personally, it's, mm. uh, you know, at least a thousand years old. So that, that music is also something that stood the test of time. Yeah, you know, you know, in fact, like I remember reading in Orthodoxy, the whole per the whole point, uh, the goal they try to the church tries to achieve is like the experience you have in one Orthodox church should be the same experience you have on any other church across the world or throughout time. Because so the original it, idea of uh, the original idea of uh, franchising was out there, is it? Uh, <laughs> but franchising changes over time. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but the experience like the experience you have today in McDonald's is not the same as the one you had when the McDonald's brothers first started up, you know, but in Orthodox Church, they're trying to come like time travel you to the past. And so the experience you have today is the same as some guy in the 1300s would have going to his Orthodox Church. Well, I mean, so I'll, I'll give you the parallel to to my experience with what you're what you're describing there, because, like I said, I was uh, I was born in Afghanistan. Okay. And so the uh, Afghanistan is, I'm pretty sure it's 99.999% Muslim. I'm sure there's a small percentage of people who are of different beliefs, but they really don't get to speak out. And if they do, they're usually, their lives are in danger, right? So it's, uh, so in this case, when, when I was uh, brought up, I was always the curious child. I was uh, sent to Islamic school and I, and I rejected it from like the very first second. Cause as soon as I walked in, I felt I, like you said, I felt something was off, right? I, I couldn't put my finger on it. I was too young. I was asking questions that weren't being answered appropriately. They were mostly just, you know, be quiet. And, you know, that those are not good questions to ask. But right off the bat, I always knew something was amiss. But what ended up happening was, as I grew older, I started to experience the suffocating presence of its uh, practices as it was but, but, but in my household. And, and typically, uh, Islam has these two sects where when, when Muhammad uh, died, the leadership was uh, left uh, in the hands of one group or another, depending on which side you follow. So the Sunnis are essentially what the, um, uh, the Arabs and most of uh, the Arabians practice. And right. they, they said that the leader was Abu Bakr, uh, who was the, the uncle. And the Shias, which is uh, the Iranians and some, most of the Iraqis, they're, they're saying, no, it was Ali. It was, uh, you know, his, um, the, the first convert to Islam and, you know, the, the husband of his daughter, um, uh, I got those are details incorrect. Somebody's going to screw me. But nonetheless, the point is that's where the schism of Shia and Sunni started. 
And I happen to know both because one of my parents is one and the one is the other. So I get to see the inner rivalries between the two uh, manifest itself at home anyway, right? So I, I, as a child, I grew up watching the, you know, oh, some, some Muslim that did something bad. Oh, look, it's the Shias that are bad. Oh, no, it's the Sunnis that are bad. So I kind of got to see both sides of it because I got to witness that from, um, you know, watching my parents and, and they're either, you know, their sides sort of bicker about these things. And, and sometimes it got a little bit uh, much to handle, but that whole presence of the internal conflict already was what I grew up in, sort of like, sort of like what I marinated in when I was um, a younger man. And then when I went to school for this stuff, the experience was almost always the same, which was don't question anything, right? So the, the I think the, 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 reason, the real reason atheism has an appeal to start with is it gives you a venue for your, your, um, your re rebellious form. The idea to say, look, just because you think something is right, that doesn't mean I agree with you. And that, right. that thought alone is very dangerous in a country that's very heavily religious in nature, right? Because the, the, the entire, if you look at any Muslim country, there's almost always the Islamic Republic of something, right? They don't have just the country of, you know, you know, it doesn't just say the United States of America. It would be like the Islamic Republic of America. Something along those lines would be what they, what they always la label it as. And the problem with it is, and, and from a religious point of view, uh, that I at least had, and this is just an N equals one uh, observation. So please do not extrapolate this beyond uh, my experience. And to all our listeners who may or may not find this offensive, that's just too bad. Uh, but here's what it is, right? So when I grew up, what I was able to witness was that it affects everything. How you dress, uh, what you eat, what time you go to bed, who you talk to, who can you be friends with? Who are you allowed to lie to? Who are you allowed to... Um, uh, do business with what level what kind of business can you do or oh, these people collect interest that's not allowed oh but did you know that interest is basically a compensation for risk somebody's taking no no it's usury okay but that's just one example of it right so they there's this constant meddling of it to the point where you have to submit everything to this process and the problem with the process is it's not open to questioning it's not open to uh reason and at least in those guards and i went to the various mosques too it wasn't just my household i was like okay maybe the brand of Islam that I've been exposed to is very uh, stale, so to speak, as you said. Not sterile, but stale. It's, it, mm. it's, it was good. The bread was good, but now it's been sitting out too long, right? So I, I said, okay, you know what? Let me go and discuss this with other people. So I read and I you know, traveled the roads and, and talked to various people about this stuff. We had conversations to like four or five in the morning because this is a very fascinating topic for me. And one of my dear friends, um, my wand, uh, he and I actually did something very interesting, which was at the time, we just said, you know what, let's just see if there's an Afghan atheist group on Facebook. You know, I wonder, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody else out there who feels the suffocating process and just doesn't want anything to do with it. Because, you know, we, we grew up here, we, we, you know, I studied engineering and he was a, uh, studying pharmacology. And so we're both like kind of very heavily exposed into the scientific process. And in the Islamic countries, the scientific process is not really something that's heavily um respected anymore engineering is you know build a car build a uh, you know build a plane all those things you know that's fine build a bridge but anything you go into the other side of the of, of science to question um you know uh morality or the question and the concept of evolution forget about it that's not even that's a non-starter so wow. we started this group right so we started this group on facebook and it was just the two of us i said hey let's just see because i was going to start it myself but i already saw that it existed so I saw, I saw, oh, somebody else already started this. So I kind of messaged the admin. I'm like, hey, you know, it's fine. It's fancy you started this group. I was just going to see if I, I was going to start it and just see if there's anybody else even interested. And within a span of, let's say, six, seven months, we went from like 150 members to 10,000 members. But what was interesting 
it wasn't the vast majority of the people that joined on weren't necessarily of the same mindset that we were. They were more upset that we actually existed. So a lot of the Muslims and Afghans who actually thought this whole the, the entirety of the group itself was it was a blasphemous process, right? So anybody associated with it, and there was death threats sent out. There, like it, it got really serious, really, really fast. So we would try to engage in conversations using the devices of rhetoric that you know Christopher Hitchens is is, is very famous for, a man who I deeply respect, uh, who and I and I, that same talk you speak of, he was one of the four people on that stage uh, discussing right, yeah. the conversation. And he's like, of all the other guys that are on that stage, he's, the, he's, he's, you know, he's for real because he's the guy who would go into these parts of the world where it was dangerous and he would report about it and he would tell the truth as, as he saw it. And I think uh, Nassim, he said there was only one guy he would go drinking with and it would be Chris, Christopher. Oh, uh, really? I didn't shame. know he said that. Yeah, they're, they're, he actually, and that, that's what I read. Uh, it may not be accurate. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's what I read. And um, I think it was on his page, on his Facebook page, but... No, the reason is because um, Christopher was actually the kind of guy who would go into Iraq and report and tell you what happened to the Kurds and tell you what happened to the to the war zones. He'd go to Belfast and Belgrade and he'd go to all these locations where things were happening and he would discuss this process from within. So he actually had skin in the game, whereas the other guys, as we all know, uh, the IYIs, they, they just sit from afar, right? They just sit yeah. um, some some chair somewhere in, in you know, in, in Los Angeles or, or you know, Oxford, wherever he's at, he's at. And they would just pontificate without actually having a sense of experience of what it's like to be on the other side of the equation. So from that point of view, I was starting to look at it. And, and, I, and I loved Nassim's first book. I had read, I, I'd only read uh, The Black Swan. And the reason I'd read The Black Swan was, at the time, everybody was talking about it. Like, oh, you really have to read this book. You know, it's called The Black Swan. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. What's The Black Swan? I want to read The Black Swan. I'm like, no, no, no. It's not about birds. Trust me. I'm like, okay, fine. So I, I read it. And I was like utterly fascinated. Instantly, I'm hooked, right? So I became a Taleb fan. And then I looked at it and I said, oh, there's another book by him called Fooled by Randomness. So I picked that up. And I'm reading all this. And the whole time, I kept thinking, Nassim is basically just like these other guys. Like, you know, I had, at the time, I was, you know, reading everybody I could get my hands on, you know. So I was thinking, oh, he's definitely going to be in the camp of people who are uh, anti-authoritarian. But it, it, it very much surprised me when I saw him on the other side of that debate. And I, for the longest while, I couldn't really sort of square that circle. I was like, I, I get his ideas. They're very practical and they're very useful. Yet he clings to defending these ideas that have brought nothing but misery to me and uh, the vast majority of the people that I know who grew up under that kind of uh, rule. But then I realized it's because the, 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 the experience he's discussing, sort of similar to what you're talking about, is vastly different than the, the kind I experienced. And I think the difference is very subtle, but it's very effective. And here's the difference. So if you grew up in a country where it's um, Christian majority, which is sort of like the United States or, or Europe in these days, you're allowed to question the process, right? You're not, you're not told that, hey, this is how you dress and this is how you eat. I'm sure there's the pockets of it where that's the case. But it's not like the overwhelming majority of it is the most hardcore version of it that's controlling everybody's lives. Right. It's sort of like subdued in the sense that, look you know, do unto Caesar what is his and, you know, and, and leave the kingdom of God to, 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 to that side of the work. Whereas in the Islamic world, it's really not, and I keep saying this and people find this controversial, but it's actually factually true. Islam is more a political ideology than it is a religion, right? And, and, and that's because the way the whole system is set up, um, the ruler of the country is sort of a representative of God within that particular country. And so the, the, the way it permeates throughout the culture um, is really different from the way Christianity does it because as, as we both have seen there's a there's a mass separation of concerns 
And so his defense of the ideas was not predicated upon how it's enforced in the Islamic world. And I think once I've connected those dots, and it took till Anti-Fragile came out for me to make those connections. I said, okay, I see what he's saying here. It's just that the parts of, of, of Islam, and, and, and I want to say this very, very uh, clearly, not all parts of it are horrible, obviously. There's a significant part, parts of, uh, of the religion that actually brings order and, and peace and you know, joy and all that stuff with it. And because that becomes the normal state, what you end up noticing is the parts that are not necessarily great, right? Because that's always what happens. If we're outside and we're cavemen, anytime it rains, we're, 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 no, we're, we're, we're in danger of getting soaked, wet, and sick and potentially dying. Once you live in a nice house, the rain doesn't really affect you, but now what affects you is, oh my God, it's too hot, I need an air conditioner, right? So it's sort of the same thing with the, with the religious ideas. Where if it's just part of the process, then it's brought you all this extra stuff that, you know, about the security and, and the cohesiveness of the, of the family and all that stuff. You don't, you don't, you don't take that uh, into account, but you also notice all the bad things. Like it tells you how to eat and how to dress and all that stuff. So when I was able to connect those dots, it really brought it home for me. And I said, okay, I sort of see what's going on here, right? So this is the point of view that Nassim was pushing about is that I am railing against the, the, the loud, prickly points of it, but I'm completely discounting all the silence that's making it work, right? So that's where we sort of join parallel paths because, again, in our culture, it's the same thing. You know, become an engineer or become a doctor. If not those two things, then become a lawyer. So, so the, the, the Chinese the culture that you're describing earlier is very similar to the uh, Afghan culture that I experienced. But religiously, it's sort of different because I grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of an environment where the thought, the mere thought of A, not marrying an Afghan woman, for example, or B, uh, if, if she's not Muslim, that's not even a conversation that's going to be entertained, let alone accepted and, and, and valued and prized and cherished, right? So, so we sort of come at that from that same angle where we kind of question where it's going. But as far as I'm concerned myself, I'm, I don't concern myself an atheist anymore because as a famous quote from Christopher Hitchens was that atheism is a necessary but insufficient condition for enlightenment. And so the argument there is that you've walked away from the, from the side of it that you can see all the, uh, the cons of the uh, particular set of beliefs that have been imposed upon you, but that doesn't mean you're, you're where you want to be, right? You're, you're now left outside this whole massive group of people and what, what you're left outside with is, is not very much, right? So that's where you, you're, you're, you're constant harking back to the idea of, of, of sterile, sterility and, and lack of joy. You get to really experience that because if you do it in, in my culture, and Ember has actually had an experience in the same way, is that once you walk away from that whole process, you are literally left by yourself to the point where people are told not to even associate with you, let alone invite you to gatherings. Because they can, they can see you outside and they won't even wave to you. They won't even talk to you. You're basically like... What happens if you leave the Church of Scientology, so to speak, right? You're to <laughs> totally shunned. So I'll, I'll give that floor there to Ember so she can give you her experience of that same uh, upbringing. And then we'll come back and we'll tie it into your original points with this. Yeah, for me, it was the same thing, but it was like very controlling. And uh, religion, to me, it just looked like it gave people an excuse to do bad things. And that was my perspective of it uh, growing up. Um Towards women, it was very controlling. And I don't know if it's like that for other people who are in the same religion that I was in, which was um, uh, Islam. But for me, I just, I hated it. I did not like it at all. And um, yeah, I went into uh, atheism. I didn't want to believe in anything. Uh, and it was not seen as a good thing. My mom came after me like crazy. <laughs> oh. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um. 
I don't believe that there's no God out there. Maybe there is, but I don't follow any religion. I just, I can't do it just because right. of what I've went through with it. I just, I prefer not following any religion. I mean, if there is something out there, good. If it's not good, uh, I just live my life without religion in my life at all. Yeah, yeah. so we come at it more from the vibe negative process, which is like, let's just eliminate this as opposed to adding something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I yeah. Get, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I I, I kind of like um, Nassim's approach, where he basically he he's Christian, but he follows Christianity like a pagan would. If right. That makes sense. Right. Because you know, because that's how religion really originally and should be lived by. It it's when people start taking it to the extremes, uh, you know, like fundamentalism, that they start imposing all these strict. Uh, it, it starts permeating into other parts of society, like in governing people and how families control families and and, and social social barriers. But following it like a pig, it's it's like it's a culture. It shouldn't be right. so you know so much as like a a, a law. Though though yeah, it did originally just... in Judaism as a as a law, but I think that's that's more like geographic geographical windy. See, the, the way I, I interpret that is it's kind of like lifting weights, right? It's not for everybody. But if it is for you, come in and follow the rules as you see fit. Push yourself to where you can. Then leave when you can't, right? So if you show up and you want to fast, great. It'll do you good. But that doesn't mean you have to do it. You have to choose. We, we have to give you the, the autonomy and the respect of dignity to say that you choose to participate. It's not mandatory for you. And that's, that's right. I think the line gets crossed when it goes from choice to mandatory. And that's what we... The vast majority of atheists, and I'm and I'm and I've known a whole series of them. Trust me, when I when I was running that whole circle with those guys, <clears throat> the vast vast majority of us were rebelling against authoritarian control, right? So we were told what to do, what to think, how to think, all all those things that just naturally become suffocating. And I'm, I imagine um, <clears throat> Alex's parents could speak to that if if, if you know from his experience from uh, the Soviet from back home. I'm sure his parents didn't appreciate the concept of living in those communes that he, as he was discussing. Yeah, uh, they definitely didn't. And, you know, I wanted to mention a lot of people, uh, they, they seem to become extremely atheist. And uh, that's, yeah, like you said, like a, a rebellion against authoritarianism or, or maybe they grew up with only uh, like, I don't know, Mormons. A lot of people like that were Mormons or some like, pretty, I guess, extreme, like, Protestant Christians. Uh, they, you know, they just don't want to have anything to do with religion because uh, it's just indelibly linked. Like, uh, religion is indelibly linked with they, what they experience like that. And uh, personally, I, I, I think that's, uh, I don't know, just bo both are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the term that we use uh, with the crew is, I think it's called ludic. So when something is... is uh, the, the, the benefit of it is no longer uh, worth the cost, right? So once you start to force, I mean, I mean, the, the most cr uh, critical example of this is that I have friends who are Iranians and I have friends who are, um, you know, from um, uh, Saudi Arabia, and they'll tell you, it's like, look, when you, when you let the, the most hardcore breed of it, as, as Talib would point out, the intolerant minority of them become the ruling class to the point where they dictate everything in terms of what's taught at schools, or, you know, what kind of books are allowed to be brought in. And, and I'll give you a clear-cut example of why there's a disconnect between the, the, the Talibian paganist view of religion versus what's actually out there 
for the vast majority of the world. And I mean that in the following sense. There's a lot of Christians, that's true, but there's a lot more Muslims. And in the Muslim world, it sort of comes in the following way, which is that there are more books translated, um, let's say English written books, like, for example, Nassim's book translated into Spanish. Um, and that's just one small country in Spain. And forget Latin America, let's just talk about Spain. There are more English books translated to Spain per year than there are in the entirety of the Arab or the Muslim world combined. Right? So in Pakistan, you'd be hard pressed to find a copy of of uh, Incerto. You'd be hard pressed to find a copy of um, God is Not Great by Hitchens or or um, uh, uh, the, the Sam Harris's book. I think it was called. Um, I can't really remember. It wasn't a bad read, but uh, the point stands nonetheless, which is uh, that ideas don't get permeated into the culture anymore. Because what you really want is you want the structure where you allow new ideas to seep in, strip the qualities of those ideas that you like and embed them into your own process, but also discard the bad. And so what ends up happening in those cultures is that they create this barrier where they say, look, here's the problem. Christianity has never claimed the following throne for itself. It has never said that this is the best final solution to all the problems you have in life. Islam is exactly that. It clearly states this is the last best solution to everything that's wrong with life. And this is the perfect book written from the perfect God given to the closest ideal to the perfect man. And so right off the bat, you set yourself up for failure, right? Because now the, the problems that, predict, that, that arise in modern day are not something that could have been predicted in 7th century um, you know, uh, Arabia. So their perspective is, look, we already have the solutions to the problem. It's this book. We don't need other information coming in because it'll saturate uh, the, the, the attention of the people. And they won't be able to receive the be the benefits and the wisdom that comes from this one book. And so there's the difference, right? So in one side of the equation, you have, yeah, you know what? We have our Christianity. Yeah, it looks paganist or, or it looks foolish to you because, you know, we go to church and we, 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 we sing these hymns and all that. That's great. But we allow you to stay here. You can, you can come here and do your science lab uh, next door. We're okay with that. Whereas the other side of the equation is, no, everything is done. This is how it's done. Forget anything else that comes in. So the authoritarianism really arises from its from the foundation of its assumptions, right? So this is where the problems start to really, really come up. And it's hard to square those circles because ideally in the, in, in the, in the Muslim world, and some of the smartest people I've met, uh, not IYI smart, I mean, actual smart people are Muslims who were, you know, rebellious in their, in their, in their, in their nature from those particular countries. You know, I have friends from Pakistan, I have friends from, you know, Saudi Arabia, friends from Iran, and, and some of the smartest guys I know. And I, and I talk to them all the time and, and we always, we always have these conversations and, and there's always this idea that what have this clutch of authoritarian um, grasp kind of opened up a little bit? And what happens if more books get in? What happens if more ideas are allowed to seep through, right? And so one of the things that, that and, and it's unfortunate because right now the way the ideas get through is through YouTube and through, you know, that's why they were always, there's a big thing in, in, in Iran, which was that you weren't allowed to have satellite dishes because the Americans were, quote unquote, blast their propaganda, i.e., Hollywood movies into the into the culture and, and suffuse the culture with some um, what you'd call um, uh, non acceptable uh, trains of thought. So, so those it, movies are propaganda, though. To be well, <laughs> true. But think about it this way: What movies would you see if you were living in a country where those weren't allowed? Right. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not arguing <laughs> with you. I'm just saying, looked at from any point of view, those are propaganda. Yeah, well, but I think he's saying like it's good to have. At least to be able to see other propaganda besides just one propaganda. Sure, sure. I'm not disputing that. Yeah, no, I get, I get Alex's point. 
it's it, so so to a certain extent, a lot of American movies, and you know, this is documented that if you want to do a movie, like I think there's a new Tom Top Gun movie coming out, that if you want to do something that sort of glorifies the American military, they will let you have the planes and all that stuff because it's a recruiting tool for them, and it's also a way to show force to the rest of the world. So yeah, there's definitely an element of that. But then there's elements like like if you watch a movie um, like anything by Christopher Christopher Nolan, um, I think that's just art, right? So there's entertainment and there's art and then there's propaganda and sometimes there's a mixture of the three. But in those other countries, um, some of the movies that you watch and sometimes they're, they're you know you can find them on YouTube if you, if you speak the language. People load them up and you, and I, you know my parents sometimes watch it. So I sit down and I'm like, okay, let's just see what would have been considered entertainment uh, in 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 that particular society in the context of the time that these movies were made around you know the the, the 50s and 60s. And you watch it, and even like a story that's based on Romeo and Juliet, the ideas are lifted from there, but they're transplanted into the religious context. So it sort of distorts the whole idea. So if you've read Shakespeare, uh, as, as most of us have, hopefully, uh, if you had a decent education or if you had just a curious mind, but if you've read any of, of Shakespeare's works, you, you, you sort of understand what it is he does to you, right? So he actually rewires your brain in terms of how you connect the story because he creates a premise, a setup, and then when he pop, pop, punches his delivery, it's almost the exact opposite of what you're expecting. So that's what makes it so thrilling and so joyful and his ability to create new words uh, and, and you know weave that story. But you watch the, the Iranian version of that and it's like, wow, you've taken all the joy, so to speak, to borrow Gordon's term, out of all this. And you've really supplanted it with a theology that doesn't necessarily have a place in this. Right, so that's that's where the distortion really is, is magnified and very visible. I was gonna say, sorry, I, I, this is a small comment. I was gonna say like that's a different experience I had with because I mean like for most kids in America, when we read Shakespeare, it's like we find it really boring because because it's like the teacher has, forces you to like read the script and stuff like that in class, and like uh, I don't know, I didn't I didn't have a really good time with Shakespeare growing up. Well, you know what? I can relate to that because when I was in school, I didn't enjoy it at all. Because yeah. the, the old English and and the, it's the way they sort of explain it to you. But now, as you get a bit older, you're like, you know what? Let me just see why is you know Shakespeare is uh, to quote right. a to quote a term is Lindy, right? Like this thing's been around, right? So so you read it, and you're like, okay, I see what the big uh, the big yeah. Uh, I guess I just haven't about. yeah. I guess I just never read him for my own enjoyment. I think it was mostly always just like someone else telling me to read him. Yeah, yeah. see yeah. see that yeah, there's, that, there's... that always looks up. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's plenty, plenty of books that it depends on the teacher, and if they if they suck, then you're gonna hate them, and then maybe in ten years you'll like, rediscover it and actually enjoy it. Like most American high school public teachers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we none of us really had a, a. I mean, my my public education in Canada, um, which I, again I want to stress this very carefully. I'm very grateful for the fact that I had opportunity to do so, but I'm also deeply astounded by the quality of it, right? So it's like, it was, it's like I wasn't left outside starving, but the food that was given to me that wasn't the most nourishing source of food. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best way that I would, I would phrase it. I think, uh, that reminds me of like when, when Taleb was talking about how his experience with like Soviet Union cafeteria food, he's like, I'm still, ex I'm still recovering from it to this day. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know what? We have a term for that. It's it's called stuff. Sometimes we um, at home because my parents they each have different health problems. So my mom can't have anything with salt in it, and my dad can't have anything with spices in it. So we what we call quote unquote stuff, 
it's food, <laughs> but it's really there's there's no flavor because salt really brings it's the just flavor. Bio out it. Oh my it, god! It <laughs> you're sitting there and you're it's eating it. You're like sterile food. <laughs> it is. You're sitting there eating. You're like, my god, this is food. I know. Look, look. There's chicken and there's there's kale and there's rice and oh there's god, eggs, okay. but <laughs> but nothing tastes right, right? So <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm I'm rebelling against that in my own way in the sense that I'm like, look. Let, and, and, and Ember is the same. If, if you follow her on Instagram and on, on all that stuff, you'll see that we're big into just cooking food because, again, it's a, it's a tiny way to rebel, right? So when you're in an authoritarian country, uh, country and you're in a, in a household where there's a set of predictions of how you're supposed to operate, um, one of the ways you rebel is you eat what you want to eat. That's a small little starting point, right? Because your parents are like, look, you know, go to school, do this, do that. That's what they can control. But they're really, they kind of let go when it comes to food. Like, all right, whatever. Cook. What, you want to eat something? Go cook it yourself. And that's where it starts. So for the future authoritarian uh, Muslim parents out there, don't let your kids eat whatever they want to eat because that's where the, that's the road where uh, they end up <laughs> where we are. <laughs> sure, but I, I do think eating bland food growing up probably, like by via negativa, increased your senses and your palate to where you were able to distinguish like food much more easily. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't blame it. You know, there, there's there's definitely layers to that. And and what's interesting about all this stuff is, um, uh, if you talk to the young uh, the, the young men these days, right? And I always, and I always have conversations with them because I usually run into them in the elevator. And uh, my elevator, for some weird reason, in the building I live in, it's it's always full of the most fascinating people. I, sometimes I feel like I'm in a novel by uh, by Dickens in this because because I see all sorts of characters. Like, like the other night, I was, I was telling you guys. Um, this, I walk into the elevator and there's this female, uh, you know, standing there and, and this guy walks in and he sees me, but he almost like he didn't see me and he just starts hitting on her. And, and I'm looking at her. She's super uncomfortable and she has a ring on and she's kind of like holding her hand up to kind of give him a signal like, hey, back off. And he just, you know, I'm James Bond. So, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I <laughs> right. So, so, so I look at this man and I'm like, uh, hey, buddy, she's not interested. She's married. Back off. Right. So he kind of backs away. And then we're like, I got on the 16th floor. So now for the next about three or four floors is when this hall was happening. And I have to step in. And until we got to the basement, it was 12 floors of pure awkward silence, which was like sort of my, my zone of, 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 of joy. Because when, when I was a younger man, I had family gatherings. And, and I would do the following thing, right? So we would have a, a whole group of people defending the, the state of Palestine versus Israel in that fight. And that's a fight you never want to get into. But sometimes for, for, the, uh, for the giggles of it, I would just say, you know what? I'm in a household full of Muslims. Let me just see what happens if I choose the Israeli side of the equation. And I'd always ask one simple question, right? Oh, it's okay, guys. All the stuff you said, I'll take it for granted, and I'll, uh, I'll rent the arguments for a minute. But let me ask you a simple question. Let's flip the script. Let's give the weapons that the Israeli army has into the hands of the Palestinians. What do you think would happen? Do you think the, the, the Jews in, in Israel would be alive today? And that, as soon as you ask that kind of question, right? Because that's one of those rebellious kind of questions. It's kind of like, let me give you a thought experiment to run with. And all of a sudden, all their moral high ground superiority, all that stuff that they sort of uh, stew in with, along with the victimization. And I'm not saying that the Israeli government is perfect and all that stuff. Obviously, there's flaws on all the sides of the equation. So nobody jump on that. But, but the point is, if you put that thought experiment into their heads and you ask them, say, like, just think about this really carefully. The fact that they're willing to shoot rockets, which I get, you know, is, is I understand it. I don't I don't condone it. I understand why they would do something like that. But nonetheless, if you flip that script, what would happen? And so I was I remember this one particular dinner conversation, which was fascinating. We're all sitting on this long uh, like we were at the park and there's like these benches and just put them all aside. So there was like five benches and there's like literally 40 people sitting there. 
and we all were kind of sitting, you know, around the bench. And as the conversation started, everybody slowly started to shift around. And by the time the conversation ended, I remembered it was me on one side and 40 people on the other. And they were all like trying to chime in on the arguments. And, and I was just literally, I had no skin in the game in that regard. All I wanted to do was to poke and prod at the set of values and propositions that these people were astounding or espousing. And it was astounding to see the reaction, right? The, the, the I'd, say, I'd say you would have skin in the game because you're willing to take the contrarian stance and, and experience the public humiliation of like 40 people yelling at you. <laughs> well, the good thing is... That's skin in the other's game. Yeah. In the other's game, right? So, so the good thing about that was they always knew because one of my cousins had actually gone to the gym with me and he had seen me lift. So they, there was this subtle hint of fear that, hey, if you really get this, if, if this altercation goes from verbal uh, uh, disagreement into physical disagreement, the first person he grabs is not going to do it very well. So there's always this, this element of fear embedded into that conversation. That's where I felt safe, right? Because I was like, if I had this conversation elsewhere, obviously the, 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 the outcome of it would be different. But that was my start of my rebellion. And, and that's when, actually, that was the last time I was invited to any of these gatherings, you know, for wow. obvious reasons. <laughs> But nice. you get to sort of see it, right? You get to sort yeah. of see what happens when you when you so, take so a point of view. So then, what happened in the in the elevator after you? Ah, so the elevator. So I told this gentleman, uh, you know, I said, "Listen, you know, she's not interested." So he got really quiet and he was just standing there, and she was still super uncomfortable. So I'm standing there and I look up and I'm, you know, watching the the, the numbers, you know, what what floor are we on? And I and I looked at her. I said, "So how's your day going?" She started laughing because the absurdity of the situation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here's a here's a young man and and i've noticed this because because what's happened in this culture and and you know we talk about this and the idea of having family values and the idea of being uh, a man of your word and uh, you know having a set of principles and 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 one of the ways that manifests itself that i'm starting to notice is that the way you look right it's it's like it's easy to get out of the house looking disheveled not smelling good you know oh i'm busy i'm super busy i'm like no you're lazy that's the difference if you take a shower and you put on clean clothes and you comb your hair, and you look presentable, that takes a little bit more effort than if you just showed up and left the house as is. At the same time, if you spend a few minutes brushing, and I have a very big thing about hygiene, so for me, it's a, it's a very big pet peeve, but a lot of people don't really put effort into their hygiene. And at the same time, that sort of, it sort of cascades, right? Because you get up, and I could tell, if a person looks disheveled to me, I'm like, you know what? I'll bet you 10 bucks that guy's bed's not made this morning. And that sort of speaks to the desk, which sort of speaks to the diet, which sort of speaks to the lack of working out, which sort of speaks to the lack of effort at work. Right? It, it cascades. And I get to witness all this. And I'm like, look, you know what? I'm just an observer. I'm going to place probability bets on this. There's 10 or 15 guys at work that I'm, I'm always you know, kind of talking to and looking around with. And I'm like, okay, this guy, this guy, and this guy, I can tell you that they're going to have the following health problems. And it's just because of the laziness of the effort that they, they put into it. If you can't even dress well, I know that you're not going to put effort into your work. It's not that I'm saying you have to look like James Bond in a tux. I'm saying there's a difference between putting on a clean shirt and not putting one on at all that looks like it's been, you know, three days in a hamper or, or putting and just taking five minutes to iron out some of the wrinkles in your shirt. That sort of little thing there, it adds up, right? Because it creates these habits. And so I'm noticing that a culture that is anti-religious in, in, a, in a regard that brings along with it a, a, another set of suppositions, which is that everything is good and everything is okay. And that's where you get all this laziness sort of manifesting itself. That's where you get these guys who... You know, they look like they can't, if you, hey, listen, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a fire alert. You need to run out of the building. You could see them not making it. Right. And it, it's sort of a shame to see the deterioration of culture and sort of in a way you could kind of tie into it 
the lack of discipline because of the, the rejection of all religion. Because as far as religion goes, and, and to tie this back into our original conversation, it's really about discipline, right? It's about following a set of guidelines in the face of everything that tells you not to do it. Right? Fasting is not easy because everybody's telling you to eat. Every, t- every channel is, oh, look at this food. You go to Instagram, oh, look at these steaks, look at this uh, brisket, look at all this kale. Right? So it's always tempting uh, uh, when, you, when you reject one uh, and then you start to fall into the complacency of the other. Right, right, yeah. So what's your, what's your guys' beef with kale? I don't understand. What's wrong with kale? <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it was it was pretty funny because like kale's like it's like a meme, you know, like like because people like are all about that carnivore diet now and everything, and and they say like oh like if you eat kale, you're a soy boy and all that stuff. So <laughs> it was just, it was just hilarious to find someone out on Twitter in Taleb's Twitter circle who's like I'm the kale king and, and <laughs> talking about barbecuing with kale. I'm like what the heck is this guy? <laughs> no, I mean I have no beef with kale in actuality. I mean it's it's fine to eat, but I did actually have a friend who decided to eat kale because it's a superfood uh, every single day, and he ate kale every single day and ended up getting kidney stones and had to go to the hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah, every food yeah. is a superfood. Yeah. <laughs> so, every food's also gonna kill you if you eat too much of it. Right, that's true. But you can eat a steak every day for a month and have no problems. But if you just saying, if you eat kale every day for a month, you're probably going to go to the hospital at least once. <laughs> well, you know, the, the irony of that situation is like anything taken to extremes becomes any virtue taken to an extreme becomes a vice. Right. So so I think it was between me and Joe because Joe also likes kale. I'm like, you know what? We're going to make kale cool again. We're going to see if we can pull oh. it off. And, <laughs> and we're literally going to get that shirt printed, Kale Kings. Uh, you know, we rep what you serious? max. Are you serious? Oh, my God. <laughs> I will wear that shirt. We rep what you max. And we will film the heaviest set of weights that I can push. You are rep. the guy who is just talking about looking presentable. And you're going to wear a Kale shirt? <laughs> of course. <laughs> a kale, kale Kings hashtag, baby. Not even just Kale. <laughs> kale Kings. We're going to start a whole movement. That is sexist. <laughs> Kale Kings? What about the Kale Queens, man? That's true. Oh, but, That's true. I, um, to, to bring it back to uh, a point Quinoa just, Queens. Queens. <laughs> uh, to, to, be, to bring it back to the point you just made, though, about hygiene, uh, that was actually a topic I also wanted to talk about. I don't know if, like, if you guys want yeah. to. But, uh, and you're probably not going to like this, but <laughs> so, so for the past year, I have been testing hygiene a bit. Uh, okay. Because not so much for like, uh, it, it's actually also in a, in a sense of a, a personal discipline, but not in the okay. way that you were describing it. In, in, uh, but, you know, as a college kid and everything, I'm not very uh, wealthy or whatever to, um, to, to buy all these like hygiene products, or whatever, and like always like take care of my body. But mm. another, like another, like when, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, where, where to start with this. I guess it really started when I was in high school. I was all about looking professional every day, not prof- like in a suit and tie, but just like looking presentable and everything and, and waking up on time, showering every morning and doing all, all these different uh, uh, things to keep the best hygiene I could. And mm. then one day I remember walking into the bathroom and I had this huge plastic tub full of all these like different products like shampoo, cologne, um 
shaving cream and all this stuff. And, and, and it's just heavy plastic box. And I'm thinking, I'm like, what, 15, 16? What the fuck am I doing with all this stuff? Like, why does a man need all this stuff just to uh, keep himself healthy? Like, this doesn't seem very natural. So I started doing a lot of research into why we needed certain things. Do I actually need cologne? Do I actually need shampoo? Why do we need conditioner? All that other stuff. And I also knew there were, there were certain problems I was developing. You know, my acne was getting worse. Um, I, was getting, I was getting dry skin on parts of my body um, and, and other stuff. And I was thinking, something's wrong here. And at the time, I hadn't really known about Taleb yet. I was just starting to think about via negativa before I knew what it was. So I decided, you know what, what if I started cutting things one by one to see if I could go without them? And as I was doing my research online just to see what other people with their anecdotes and N equals one experiences were, um, I found out people were saying that, um, you know, showering every day and using all these soap products just removes the oil from your skin, which makes sense. It's not Lindy. Like it, cavemen didn't have all these different products that dry their skin and, and wipe off the bacteria all the time. Instead, your mm. skin has a bacterial culture that develops that an, an oil that helps clean itself and, and your hair cleans itself. And, and uh, like a simple wash in the water is enough to remove 90% of the dirt and muck from your body mm -hmm. uh, without the need of soap and everything. So I decided to take an extreme hygiene uh, test last year where mm. I basically, and no judgments, all right, I, I started to shower infrequently, which means mm. on average once a week, and I would use only water, and mm. I only washed my hands and my feet with soap. Mm. And okay. after a year, I, nothing happened. Like, my skin, if anything, during the winter, everyone's, you know, usually your hands get dry. My hands were the same throughout winter, and it was, you know, NYC winter, this past winter was really harsh. And I was fine. And, and my, mm. my face, too. Like, like my acne cleared up um, after I stopped using all these, like, face washes and all that stuff. And mm. um, obviously, I still brushed my teeth. Uh, try to Thank brush God. Twice a day. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's something that, because of a modern diet, you know, you need, you need all these, uh, you need the, the toothpaste to get rid of the, because of the high sugar and carbs and everything. But mm. other than that, like, really my experiences ended up proving that a lot of stuff you can go without now there is a, a part to the story that i don't think will apply to everyone and it's that body odor uh, i yes. i know that i am very lucky because i'm east asian i have the gene where i don't smell if i don't like if i sweat i could do a full complete workout i could play football with like court like like it's and, and i would be fine i would not have any body odor uh that is where i consider myself lucky uh, Wait, so I have to I, ask you a question on that. Hold on a second, though. Sure, sure. Where we get so your application of n equals one with the with the skin and the dryness, I get I buy all that. But when it comes to the odor, I'm hoping you took a larger sample set than n equals one. What do your friends say when you do that? <laughs> nobody would have noticed that. Like I'm serious, nobody ever said anything to me. And and my friends like like they they definitely would have roasted me if I smelled that. But like <laughs> I they've never said anything. I like I, I would ask him like like you know like do I do I smell weird and everything he's like no I I never noticed and I mean obviously it was only after I told him I hadn't showered in like five days they'd be like dude what the hell <laughs> like then 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 the judgments would come in but like um a lot of a lot like I I did I did pretty well from that from that experience okay 
I mean, uh, in that particular regard, I'll give it to you this way, right? A lot of people uh, don't have that particular set of benefits that you do, right? So if you had the opposite gene, we're literally just sitting in a room alone, you started sweating and you smelled, you would have a totally different experience to that process. Right. And I recognize okay. that, well, it, it's just like Guru's whole elimination diet, you know, you have to add back in some things in moder modernity to uh, account for uh, certain modern things like social approval, like people these days don't like that body odor anymore. I'm sure in old times, people were used to it. But in today, you know, if you have body odor, you smell bad. So in that case, I, I if I did have that gene, I would probably start using cologne. No, that's fair. So, so, so I'll give you because it's not like that we're in the opposite extremes of it. And in, in one regard, we are, but in another regard, we're really not that far off. But so yeah, my I have a very, very, very hypersensitive nose, right? So when I sit in a room, I could smell almost everything that's in that room. And when I get off the elevator, I know exactly what's being cooked. I know the ingredients. I know all of it. So for me, any kind of bad odor is instantaneously like it, it hits me so hard that I can't even process any other information because my nose overrides everything else. You're so like if dog. I speak to a person, oh, you know what? I know in a way it, it's, it's true because when I talk to a person and if they have bad breath, even if they're, they're at a comfortable distance from me, I can't process their information because I get so disgusted and overwhelmed by the smell of the, of, the, of the bad breath that even if they're telling me, hey, listen, I broke into the Lotto 649's uh, offices. This is the number that are going to be programmed. And if you buy this ticket, you're going to become a multimillionaire. I wouldn't hear any of that because all I'd hear is the, the, the foul odor attacking me. So for me, the experience is quite the opposite. So what I, what I do, and I don't tell people, you know, you don't have to go buy 50 different kinds of cream and all this other fancy stuff. I tell them, I'm like, buy the least uh, chemically uh, heavy product you could buy. Usually the stuff that has the least amount. So sometimes for me, and N equals one is basically the Dove products. And I do, you know, just say water will take care of almost all of it. But certain parts of your body where, you know, you have um, your lymph nodes sort of where you sweat under your arms, on the back of your knees, that type of place where your body's getting rid of waste from internal uh, movement, that area needs a little bit of help, right? So just get in there and do a little bit of work you know, some soap with the, with the least amount of, um, uh, you know, there's soaps that are really harsh, but they're supposed to smell nice. No, don't buy that stuff. Just buy the, smoke, the soap with no smell and just clean yourself off. And then when you're done, before you put on your, 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 your shirt or whatnot, I still tell people, I'm like, try this experiment. Go get some cotton balls and get some rubbing alcohol, just 70%. Dip that into the um, cotton ball and then just rub it under your armpit, even after you just showered and take a look at the color. You'll still see there's residual stuff that's there because the deodorant you put on, plus the chemicals and the oils that were there, plus your own shirt and the material it's made out of, it all turns into this petri dish of, of fantastic stuff that's being built up. So experiment with various kinds of deodorants, right? So I've tried, I don't know how many different variations because I was in that same boat as you. I'm like, you know what? Something doesn't feel right here when the washroom for ladies has 50 different things and the washroom for men because the guys who are built, selling this stuff are thinking, hey, if we can get the men to buy half the stuff that the ladies buy, we're going to go from millionaires to billionaires, right? So let's right. push all these products out there. So I get where your concern is coming from. Uh, and there is a moderate process to that. So if you, if you have Gord's genes and you're lucky enough that your friends could tell that you don't smell or they're, you know, great. Good luck to you. Fantastic advantage for you in life. Carry on with it. But for the vast majority of men, it's, it's quite the opposite, right? So not only do they not have your gene, but their diets are so poor that it amplifies whatever, quote unquote, disadvantages they may have in that area by an order of magnitude. So it turns out to be really, really bad. So you get in an elevator with these guys and it's like, wow, you know what? I Sometimes I just look at them and I'm like, I am curious as to how you get through life at all. Because if, if you were in my vicinity and we had to work together, and I've had to tell people this, I'm like, listen, I'm really sorry. I don't mean this to be personally um, you know, destructive or not. I'll talk to them in private, obviously. 
keeping civil discourse in mind. Hey, listen, you know what? A little hygiene help would be, would be very effective for you here. And most people are afraid to tell you that. And they're actually doing you a disservice because other people who may not find your presence pleasant, they will start to distance themselves from you. So you get excluded from outings and events and potential opportunities for, for contract work or, or you know job advancement and whatnot. And you have no idea. You're like, well, I'm a good guy. Everybody says, no, nobody says anything bad about me. I don't know why this is happening. Because I actually had a friend and I ran this experiment. And um, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. Um, I did not tell him. I just wanted to see what happens because it was him and his brother and they're both young. They both wanted to train with me. So I'm like, let's go, let's go hit the gym. So we worked out together. And one of them, I, I said, hey, I'm going to help you with some other stuff. And the other one was always a little bit more into doing um, uh, work at the time. So he didn't really have that time to hang out with me personally. So the one brother, I actually helped. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. So, you know, he was fresh from Afghanistan and whatnot. So there's a whole cultural assimilation that I had to help him out with, you know, get the jokes in, you know, get the, 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 the lingo of the particular, uh, you know, Torontonians, Torontonians into his uh, vocab. And along the way, I started to help him with his hygiene. And I just wanted to run that experiment to see what happens between the two of them. And I started to notice that almost within about a three-month period, that he started to advance a lot further and faster. He was being invited to more outings with people. And this is not just females' approval. This is what I'm talking general population. Wow. And the other one sort of wasn't getting as much attention. And I was like, okay, this is a, you know, obviously this is a weak correlation. This is not really, you know, scientifically valid. But I started to notice, and, and, and it was the brother himself who told him, hey, listen, you know, you, you smell. And he told him that. And he said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you've never said anything before. He goes, well, you know, we kind of never really noticed it, but now that we've, you know, I've been doing all these things, it's, you know, people are telling me that, oh, uh, you know, when they invite me, is your brother coming? They kind of ask me in a sly way to, to let me know that they don't necessarily want your presence there. And it wasn't that he smelled bad. It's just sometimes he smelled really bad. So he went from like neutral to terrible very, very quickly. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, like you said once, I, I think it was you who said it. It was like, um, it should always convert like do do a bunch of stuff and then they should always converge to n equals one right like converge exactly. to how, your preferences yeah no i totally agree with that uh i mean if anything for for me too like i, I like styling my hair i don't i don't like sometimes i wake up with my hair and it's like i i get cowlicks really easily so so what i do like i started using ergan oil and then mm. I, I like you know so, so to put it on my hair um which also apparently cleans it too i don't know about that but <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I support, I, I just think it's important to, to go from elimination to start adding in things to, to correct certain problems. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that it had had that big of an effect. But I, I can see, I, I know like you, you gave small sample sizes, but I can definitely see that being a strong reason why the, the one brother was being invited to more parties than, than the other brother. Yeah, I mean, and it, uh, again, it's, uh, you know, everything to be taken with a grain of salt. But uh, like you said, the idea here is eliminate a base foundation of nothing and then slowly add what works for you, right? So some people, and a lot of people don't notice that if you're a heavy drinker, you have a distinct nasty smell that, that comes from you when you sweat. And you don't notice this, but people like me do. I walk by and I can instantly tell them, like, this guy drinks a lot. And, uh, how do you know that? I'm like, that's it's the smell. Oh, <laughs> oh maybe so, I right? have a smell thing. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I mean, uh, there, there's, there's, there's certain layers of it. If you have a specific set of diets, um, uh, you know, uh, there's a distinct aroma that comes from it. Because as you said, it's all biochemistry, right? So I've been 
you know, I actually was offered a job a while ago for um, a, a company that does test uh, colognes and perfumes. Uh, because like you said, uh, I didn't notice this myself, but I do have this rare ability that I can distinguish between different kinds of smell to a very high degree. I'm not at the max range where these guys, you know, they get, they get paid a lot of money, by the way, uh, the, these people who test colognes and perfumes because it's a multi-billion dollar industry and, you know, they bring in people who are really good at smelling things like Michael Jordan when he had a cologne. And, you know, you find this funny, but here's the thing. They asked him the type of things he liked. And one of the things he liked was the smell of a baseball glove. You know, that leather broken in smell that comes in from having a glove worn for, you know, five, ten years. There's this little musky odor to it, which is actually quite pleasant. But the stuff he liked is what they used. And there's, a, there's actually a, a famous uh, talk, I'll send you guys a link later, where the guy was talking about how um, string theory, the physics of string theory were being applied to the people who make colognes because they were noticing that the way the chemical compounds were put together, the oscillation pattern of what they think that string theory might have represented actually gives a distinctly pleasant odor that's lingering and, and, ple- uh, and refreshing. Whereas if you just take the same chemicals and you put the, I think they call it the bicameral, and I apologize if I messed this up, but there's like a, uh, an opposite uh, chemical signature to it. It gives a very strong initial smell that it induces headaches. And so there's a lot of science that goes into that, but there's, there's a layer to this. And, and, and you know, I was talking to a person who happened to be in that industry and they're like, hey, you know, I could probably get your job just smelling things all day. I said, no, no, we're good. I don't need, I don't need that job. <laughs> I don't need the headaches that come. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Have, have you ever so, heard of the movie mm-hmm. or or novel Perfume: The Story of a Murderer? I'm no, so, I'm sorry, but but you remind me of that. <laughs> it, oh, it's basically hey, it about, about this this French orphan around the time of the French Revolution. He he just has an extraordinary sense of smell, like you, and uh, he he basically kills women to capture <laughs> their, their scent. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, all right. Ace, it's a good thing you didn't go down that path. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I would have been famous. <laughs> he took that a, job. <laughs> Maybe the, no. the you know <laughs> the the bad smells would drive you crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a thing. But here, let's listen to the. Let's have a lady chime in on this. What do you think, Amber, about general men's hygiene in today's day and age? And what is it that you prefer? So there's one person. They come into work and they're like, yo, I just got a shower. I'm like, yo, you need to go back and get another one. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, three more and then come back. (laughs) I think if you're lucky and you have that gene where you don't stink, just you're blessed. Because there's some people that they can take five showers in a row and uh, they need like five more in a row. Yeah. But I prefer smelling pretty. I prefer smelling pretty. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with it, but... uh... I guess for for me, at least as a guy, I just felt like it just felt weird to so worry about my smell all the time. Yeah, uh, I I'm not blessed with this gene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yes. I mean I I'm okay. Like uh, like if I shower and put on deodorant, uh, it's fine. You know, then you know it'll it'll last like throughout the the whole day. You know, nobody's ever complained and. I, I can smell it myself. So it, it really bothers me too. Like, like I, like even when I'm alone, like just sitting in my room, watching a movie, like if, if I smell myself, like, like it's, it's awful. <laughs> so wow. I'm sure it's much worse for other people, but uh, I put it on, but I just wanted to mention, I had, I had a uh, Korean girlfriend that really liked that smell. So mm. 
uh, I know you, you know, you, you're, you're into you're into Korean girls. So that is that, okay. That is true as well. But <laughs> maybe that's think, that's why they're I don't not think that's into appropriate you. for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, hold on. Um, you're that you're is true. I, body odor, and you're talking about being appropriate. <laughs> that's true. All right, all right. I I'm not hypocrite. But anyway, but then again, this. Anyway, uh, but what you just said that that is true. I did hear that um, women do. Some women, some women at least, are attracted to, like the kind of man's musk, like the smell mm-hmm. a guy emanates. I think, to a certain extent, like obviously, yeah, the natural man smell, to a certain extent. And in fact, I think that's where the that's what colognes try to, like like what Asi was saying earlier about the sorry Ace, what he was saying earlier about like the the oscillations or whatever from string theory. I think that's what those colognes are trying to uh, emulate that certain pattern in that smell. And put it into cologne, but the uh, like so so men's cologne does like some cologne does come close to uh, the natural man's odor because because something about it you know it makes sense because um, our smell indicates you know how our immune system is like what kind of diet we're eating so it dictates it, it um, signals the fitness of a man to a woman right and vice versa like men like the smell of women too. Not just the perfume, but like the natural odor as well. Yeah, I mean, there, there's something to that because one of the interesting aspects of it is, um, and this is just a personal heuristic of mine, when I'm at work, uh, there are times I know not to go to the bathroom at work because I know it's lunchtime and it's a little bit after that because uh, the people that I see around me and, and, and the work environment we have, um, it's, it's terrible uh, with, with regards to uh, you know healthy foods because what ends up happening is, oh, it's... Uh, a smoothie day oh it's pancake breakfast oh it's pizza lunch or it's oh donuts and coffee for everybody and so i notice the people who generally don't look healthy tend to overeat that stuff anyway and then if, if you happen to be unfortunate enough to go to the washroom when when they're when they happen to be in the stall <clears throat> it is the equivalent of a nuclear bomb going off in your nose right it's like wow and i'm not saying that everybody's stuff doesn't smell that's fine but there's layers to it which is uh, this becomes toxic to the point where it's like well i can't believe that's coming out of your body Right. If you are eating clean and healthy, there's going to be an order. Obviously, the question is how bad is that order? Right. There's there's layers to that. So people people have to pay attention to their diet because your actual order, and I've and I've learned this from my my own personal uh, experience through all this stuff, is entirely t- predicated upon your diet. A vast majority of it is how well you eat, how much water you drink, and there's a reason why toilets have water in them, right? Because it suppresses a lot of the odor that comes from the chemicals that get released into that. So if you're not drinking a lot of water, you're not hydrated, you are going to have a lot of foul odors that are going to emit from your body, right? Because that's why, if you, if you think about it, uh, uh, even in, 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 you know, I remember this conversation with, uh, there's a fa- fantastic piece with uh, Joey Diaz and, and Joe Rogan, and uh, Diaz was talking about what happens when you go to prison, and, and you know, yeah, that, you know when you're doing a number two, they're like, oh, put some water on that, because it smells from where the, wherever the, the other guys are. So you guys should look into that clip, it's hilarious. But nonetheless... I have noticed a simple, uh, clear correlation. The people who smell the worst are the ones who drink the least amount of water. And it's bad breath, it's bad body odor, it's bad smelling hair. And hair, I can smell, because what usually happens to me is if we're walking up a flight of stairs, I usually wait. I let the person take about four or five steps, and people feel a little awkward and uncomfortable because it breaks the flow of conversation, unless they know me. Then they go, oh, I know what Ace is doing, so it's okay. Or they let me walk ahead so that there's no... There's no smell in front of me because usually I can smell the hair. I can smell everything that comes from that person, right? So what I noticed, and I, this is just my own keen observations of it, is that uh, people who drink lots of water, 
don't have those, I don't have those problems with them. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Their hair doesn't smell. Hmm. And they're telling me, oh, I, I don't wash my hair every day. I wash it two, three times, uh, two, three days later. I'm like, oh, okay. But I noticed that they're drinking so much water and they're constantly getting hydrated and rehydrated and they're cleaning the inside out so much that it doesn't really get to the point where it profuses outward. So if anything from this whole conversation, it's drink more water. That is, that's really interesting. Wow. I am drinking Gatorade right now as we speak. <laughs> Maybe I hope that helps. <laughs> you know, you know what I find? I find Gatorade very useful when I play volleyball. And and most people don't realize this, but if you ever just want to do a fantastic sort of uh, cardiovascular activity that's actually fun, beach volleyball. There's nothing like it because it's like you're standing still, and all of a sudden you're jumping. Right? That's like an explosive movement all at once, yeah. and then you're quiet all volleyball over. Volleyball right? is so, very a very tough activity. I I was on this intramural team for a time. And uh, I experience. I, I understand now why volleyball is such a tough sport. It is. It's easy. It's easy to watch, but it's actually really hard to do. You know what? The vast majority of sports are like that. Uh, some of them, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys ever seen curling on TV. Um, it's this weird-looking Canadian sport, I guess. I used to make fun of it, and my friend told me, he "Goes actually, it's like the combination of bowling and billiards uh, combined into like." Uh, a slow bit of um, a balancing act on, on the ice. So let's go try it one time. So, okay, let's go try it. One of the hardest things I've ever done, right? It looks so stupid on TV. Like, what is this? Like, what are you doing? But if you actually watch the rules of it, you go, oh, okay, I see what these guys are doing. It's a lot of fun and it's very difficult. And I think a lot of the sports that tend to stick around, uh, they have this component of it. And I've noticed this across the spectrum. So when it comes to video games, board games, sports, the things that make the most uh, money and the things that a lot of people can do I always have two components. The first component is very easy to learn. Right? Like, what are the rules to the sport? It's this, 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 this. Done. Okay, cool. I got it. And then the other thing of it is it's impossible to master. And that's the, that's the beautiful flip side of the coin. If something is easy to learn and difficult to master, a lot of people will pay a lot of money to do it. That's why Rubik's Cubes go. That's why chess is big. Playing pool is huge. You know, all, all these other sports. Golf. Like, golf is one of the most simplest sports in terms of rules, but it's almost impossible to master. So I've noticed that there's this weird little trend that uh, if you want a game that's successful and you're creating it, that's if that's happened to you, one of your hobbies, if you know people, I know some friends who are currently building board games of some sort. And I always tell them, like, make it easy to learn, impossible to master. And that's it. That's the sweet zone. That's why other games that are not like that usually don't do so well, right? Because once you figure it out, you get bored very easily. Because once you've learned it and you've mastered it, like, I want to do something new. And that's also why people love music, right? You become a music. Music is never ending because it's never something you can master. And I've noticed that with great performers when you, you know, watch them playing the piano or the guitar or whatever instrument it is they're doing, is that they're always telling you, oh, I missed that note. I'm like, I didn't even notice it. What, what note did you miss? Because, oh, my timing on this note was just a half second off and didn't feel right. Um, meanwhile, it sounded perfect to us, right? But if you listen to some of the tracks in the Beatles, you'll actually hear them in the middle of the recording swear. I think it was Paul McCartney or was it John Lennon um, during one of the recordings. I think I know what you're talking about, yeah. Right? Right? So that's the thing. It's this beautiful thing. We, we all love it. Is this easy to learn, impossible to master, and that is your sweet. And that's why coding is such a big, beloved thing these days, right? It's easy to learn, quote unquote, but it's almost impossible to master. There's so much stuff to do, right? Same thing with probability theory and all the stuff that, that Nassim and the, uh, the, the Rory guys are talking about. The concepts, when he explains it to you, minus the math, are like, okay, I, that's intuitively, that makes sense. And then you look at the math, like, oh, my God, if I'm going to master this thing, I have to quit my job and, and you know, <laughs> spend 15 hours a day learning this. And I've noticed this trend because a lot of the guys that we talk about in our circle, they're not all heavy math uh, oriented. You know, a, a few number of them obviously are. 
But the rest of us, we usually tag along because, and I'm speaking strictly of myself and a couple of the guys that I know who told me this, so I'm not speaking on your behalf. If I if it feels like that, I apologize, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm noticing is that we, ga- we gather Nassim's ideas or Joe's ideas or, or uh, Robert's ideas or Trisha's ideas. We grasp it intuitively from the language of how he explains it. But then when they get into the math, it's almost like, oh, they're speaking Klingon at this point, right? It's like, okay, that's too much. Like when I think Nassim just put a, uh, he puts up his probability du jour thing that he puts up every every day or once in a while. And I look at that. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to follow this thread until somebody comes along and says, oh, this is what he means in English terms. And then I can go back and I can look at the math and say, okay, 90% of this, I have no idea because, you know, I, I didn't have such a great uh, affinity for mathematics when I was younger. So I'm not uh, ashamed to admit that. I'm interested, but I can't grasp this at the level that he's talking about it where to, to the point where sometimes you see Yanir and Joe or Robert and and, uh, and um, Nassim talk back and forth. A lot of it gets lost in translation for the rest of us because our, our mathematics level isn't that high. And I'm speaking to just a couple of the guys. I'm not sure how you guys feel about that. I'm not sure how good you are at the math. I'm not going no, to make a I, presumption just, about I'm your Chinese heritage. Boat. I'm on the same boat as you, man. I'm not Chinese, I'm American. <laughs> You're American, so, fair enough. <laughs> no, I, I don't understand it either. I want to learn, though. I, I bought a bunch of the books that he reviewed on his Amazon page, Dude, or his Amazon pro- profile. Uh, so I have them sitting. I have the information theory by James V. Stone. Uh mm sitting on on my uh nightstand just waiting for me to try to crack it open and i, I do too actually understand right <laughs> well I, I i've looked through it and then uh just a lot of things you know like some of them i probably will understand but it's just some of the notation like i don't know what that means like if it says like p and then in parentheses x comma y i don't know what's what that means you know because like if, if it's like p x comma y it's like is that a a function or you know like what does that mean i think that means isn't that like the actually i don't know i'm not even gonna try probably like but probability that, of x and y or i don't know see uh <laughs> I, my my copy is actually trish inks i'm supposed to give it back to him but i keep forgetting so <laughs> I'll, I'll get it back to him eventually but for now i guess it's just mine <laughs> you know what this is a perfect segue for one thing, and I'm, and I'm going to let uh, Ember chime in right after this because we all know, I'm not sure how mathematically inclined she is, but I've been harking on Joe, and I told him, I said, bro, you need to start uh, an online course just teaching fundamental mathematics and, and probability theory because you would push the world along so much further if the rest of us who are keenly interested in these ideas can be, you know, we don't have a station to get on the, on, on the train for this uh, set of ideas, right? There's no station for us to jump on. You know, I remember Nassim was saying that he was reading all the probability books, textbooks for years because his father and him had a deal where as long as he kept his grades up, he could basically do whatever he wanted. And he basically buried himself in, in, in you know, learning uh, probability theory and mathematics and statistics for, for his own personal pleasure. So he has that foundational background that you know, I don't have. And I'm sure you guys can attest to the same thing. So when he speaks to these ideas, as much as they are interesting, we miss a whole lot of it because we don't have that foundational structure to grasp what he's talking about. So it's a segue right. to ask Joe one more time. Hey, Joe, you know, uh, stop getting into tr- uh, uh, Twitter spats and, and, and let's get an online course going and get you to teach them. Because uh, Joe's, of all the people I've spoken to about these type of stuff, Joe is probably the most fantastic when it comes to explaining ideas, right? So if he does an online course just going through probability theory and statistics, I guarantee you it'll be the most uh, successful version of that. As long as it's just him speaking, you don't need, he doesn't even have to do like in the last podcast we did with him. 
he doesn't even have to do anything where he has to draw anything on it. He could just explain himself like uh, as a phone conversation and you would fully grasp what he's talking about. So one more time, Joe, please get that going. And, and I guarantee you, you'll at least have four students right off the bat because uh, we'll jump on. So Ember, how good, how good is your math? Uh, I remember doing math younger. Like uh, my parents put me in Kumon, which was like um, math equations, like booklets with a bunch of math equations and you were timed. Um, and you had to do uh, within a certain time period and you have to get perfect uh, scores on it as well. So I enjoyed mm. math a lot when I was younger, but as I got older, I just, um, I never really got it in high school. They kind of just ruined it for me. I was mm. like, here's your math equation. Here's your paper, solve it. Mm. And I never did homework. I hated doing homework. So I fell out of love. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, uh, you know Alex, it's, I remember, wait, hold on, sorry. Uh, I remember uh, Nassim talked about how he learned probability, actually, and this is really interesting. He was in college, apparently, and he didn't know much probability. Like, I don't think he knew enough for the classes at the time, but when the professor was talking about certain things, he was like, this doesn't make any sense, and he would ask a lot of questions and question them, and obviously got into arguments with the professor, and the professor in the class, I think, would humiliate him or argue back. So what he did was he went to a library, and at the time there was no internet, so he went to the library and got every book he could find on probability and stochastics, anything with the title probability and stochastics, and he would, he, he would sit down with these stacks of books, right? And he would open one book, and as soon as he got to a part where he didn't understand or got bored of, he would like close that book and then open another one. And that, so he would cycle back and forth between different books, basically reading them all at the same time, and that's how he got so good at probability. Like how, how he basically crash course it, crash course it himself. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny about that? Uh, as you guys were talking about that list that he has of the books that he's talking about, I went through that same procedure myself, but then I realized that there's something missing in that process, which is that sometimes the books that are recommended need other books that explain those books, so to right. speak, right? It's, so, so there's this layer of, of there's this, like, okay, here's the ladder, climb it. But there's a couple of steps missing. So as you're climbing, you, you start to sort of become discouraged because like, okay, I don't understand this thing at all, right? Like somebody needs to explain this to me in a way that's different from the way this author is explaining it. Because as I taught myself how to code, and as Ember is learning now, there's an idea, like for example, a for loop in, in, in programming is just repeating the same uh, set of calculations given a set of uh, you know, right. assumptions. Does this make sense? No, keep doing it. Now that concept, it can be explained by five different people five different ways. And, and what I've learned through my experience is that sometimes a concept doesn't sink in until the fifth person's explained it their way and you've grabbed enough from each of the first four people that the fifth person's idea all of a sudden clicks in your mind, right? Yeah. I think the problem with, with the you know, public education is that we don't have an educated public. And, and, and that's a, I think that's a Thomas Sewell quote. Is, I, I think the problem is a concept like mathematics or even Shakespeare you lose students very quickly because you don't know their gaps before they got to you. So you may be a fantastic teacher in grade 10 who teaches, let's say, introduction statistics. And you're, you're like very good at what you do. But unfortunately, the people sitting in the room in front of you, I don't, I don't know how many kids were in your classes, but at least for me, it was 30 to 35. So 35 people sitting in a room, the varying levels of understanding of basic stuff like, you know, uh, algebra or, or, or trig or, or, or calculus or whatnot, you don't know what, where the gaps are. So as you try to tailor your solution by explaining it to people from a point of view where you assume a common understanding, 
is where you lose people very, very quickly. And that's why math starts to fall off. Everybody that you know, like, oh, I don't like mathematics or I hate mathematics. And I've always been, you know, the irony of it is mathematics is the ability to understand things, right? So you want to be able to understand, so you've got to get the math behind you. But the problem is somewhere along that gap of, of public education from when we first start school to when we graduate. And, and I've been to university and I've done college and you know, engineering and business. And I didn't, learn, I didn't really understand mathematics until... I took, there's a course uh, by um, these two professors at MIT, and they're teaching you um, uh, programming. I think it's called Sussman. Yeah. Those are the guys. I was on YouTube listening to them, and they're explaining how um, they use Lisp to do calculations for Newton's method for calculating um, square roots. And as soon as the guy was explaining that, boom, everything with regards to calculus started to make sense to me. And I remember that because I was like, you know what? The whole time that I was learning this stuff, I thought I was dumb because I wasn't getting it. But the way Sussman explained it, and he was doing it with code, and I'm like, oh, that I can co immediately connect. And so the gap between my initial exposure to mathematics and, and, and calculus was, you know, at least 15 years until I actually made the dots connect. And so a lot of people get discouraged, and they really don't find that way to find their way back into the, into the conversation with regards to mathematics. That's why I think a lot of people make a lot of bad decisions when it comes to these things that are math-oriented, right? That's why they, they, they really need somebody to come along and say, hey, let me take this idea that you don't like and let me apply it to a thing that you do every day and let me see if I can draw that bridge for you so that you can make the connections for yourself. Right, yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's you, you reminded me, it, it's, uh, um, it, it also helps a lot when you're learning something that like, like, like you hear people explain it in different ways, but what I've found is like learning something graphically and visually has been like the biggest thing for, learning like understanding much faster like learning math the reason why it's so difficult especially for a lot of my friends when i was growing up and i i didn't understand this until years later was like because what i was saying before about sterile information you know you you math is like you see a number right and it's like like you see lines and 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 on graphs and everything and, and you have to like write these long equations with these exponentials and if you know when, when we're looking at taleb's probability proofs and everything it's just equation after equation, just a whole, it's like a code, you know, and, and we, we don't understand any of the context. So to us, it's sterile information. But I remember hearing how Benoit Mandelbrot, when he was a kid, he would solve problems faster than his teacher in his classes because his teacher, while teaching algebra, would write these, these numerical expressions on the board and try to solve it through there. But in his head, in Benoit's head, he would start visualizing the geometry of it so he'd see how the geometry and the shapes and 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 like kind of like use images to solve those problems and that would allow him to solve it faster and that so he learned math for, with geometry first instead of our usual process of learning through algebra and that's like that's just that, that's one of my big problems with like schools because schools uh like you were saying earlier like the a big problem with school isn't just like um the teacher not getting the students it's also the whole it, it's it's a problem from the start because the whole point of school is the idea that you teach basics and then build on the basics with advanced but what how humans i think really learn is you jump back and forth between advanced and basics you you don't follow a linear path you know if that makes sense like like it's like uh learning is more random like you jump back and forth between different uh, um, different skill levels, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, uh, like, 
and, and see how it applies and see the context be between us. So you can start organizing the information and starting to understand uh, how things fit together instead of, you know, memorizing a multiplication times table and then moving on to algebra and then moving on to, to geometry and then like trigonometry and memorizing all those trigonometry proofs or memorizing all the all the pre-calculus like uh, equations and, and all that stuff, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's always been one of the, the most illuminating aspects of it because here's what 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 I've discovered from um, studying the concerto uh, and all these ideas about uncertainty. It's that <clears throat> the process of learning is disconnected in school in the following regard: one, in school the answers are always finite and understandable, and and you could grasp it right away, right? Because the answer is in the back of the book. That's that's a disconnect from the real world because in the real world that doesn't really work. The second thing of it is the gaps, right? So school is linear. It's like, oh, you do this, to do that, to do this, and to do that. Okay, cool. The real world, it's, never, it's nothing like that. In the real world, it's almost these weird circles of, of, of diversion and blind alleys until you discover the truth. And sometimes when you discover the truth, it's because you've jumped over a wall, right? So it's hard to take that set of principles of uncertainty and, and randomness and sort of formalize that into an education system that you can actually bestow upon um, a large group of kids sitting in a room who are bored out of their minds in a way that's effective. And so I've, I've, I've found that, you know, a lot of these kids these days and a lot of the adults we, we speak to, and Ember is actually one of the lucky ones because she didn't go through all this stuff. But the thing that's fascinating is everybody says, oh, you have to go get an education. And I always remind them, like, you know, the vast majority of human history, we were just fine without this requirement for this massive amount of debt for a quote unquote, a secondary education. I'm not saying education is bad. What I'm saying to you is the cost-benefit analysis of it aren't adding up anymore, right? So this massive amount of debt you're getting uh, for this particular degree is not going to pay for itself. And now your optionality for what you could do in the future is very heavily constrained. And you may end up working at a Starbucks selling coffee, bitter and resentful toward the process of the world, not, quote-unquote, glorifying and exalting your intellectual status because you got a degree in, I don't know, whatever field. Uh, so in a way... The, the, this is where the whole thing collapses in on itself, right? The assumption is that if you go through these linear steps, you know, go to a good school, get into a good university, and then you'll end up with a good job. None of that is true, right? So, and you, you go through these linear steps, you come out of it with this massive amount of debt and no real options in front of you. And you could kind of see where all this resentment and this, you know, Occupy Wall Street movement and all these other political factions having any sense of appeal start to show up. Right? It's not necessarily that the people who are in, uh, engaging in these activities are upset at the state of the, uh, 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 their own education and their own you know, misguided perceptions. It's that they just want something to get even with. Right? So there's yeah. just this anger, and they're looking yeah. for ways to, to express that. Yeah, and the whole, thing, the whole thing's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, think about it. Like Education itself, you have to go to education because the guys who are employing people went, had an education themselves. So, so, so then they push people to go get an education, and then once they get hired, they're going to push the future generation to get an education as well. So I, 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 just, I don't know. I see it as a huge problem. Like my personal solution to this, which I think is the best step for society to take, would be to be like Germany and have universal public education. Because the less emphasis a society puts on education, the less it becomes abused. Because then people stop... Like the loan companies, every like 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 giving out these private loans or whatever to kids, and and just so they can go to college and get a degree to hopefully get a job, it, it goes away because with the public education, maybe the quality 
goes down. Maybe maybe and 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 more people who choose or don't choose to go to education won't see it as some as like a huge barrier to get a job. It won't become such a prestigious uh, requirement to put on your resume to show to an employer if everyone's getting the same universal public education. Right, and and I think there was a there's a there's a talk where Nassim was um, uh, on stage talking to this. Uh, to, I think there's a he was invited to Finland. I think it was yeah. He was sitting on stage and he was saying, you know, the best thing you could do is get rid of all these universities and open more trade schools. And, and everybody kind of chuckled at that because apparently in Finland there's the highest rate of people with PhDs than anywhere else in the world. Uh, but it, there there's always these these problems that are. Uh, unintended consequences, right? So you have all these people who reject faith for one reason or another, and they become faithless to the point where they become apathetic in life, right? And then there's this idea of formalist education that is shoved down everybody's throat. And what ends up happening with that is bitter resentment full of debt, right? So right. What, what ends up happening here is we always, like, you know, we've always emphasized this, even when we're, you know, uh, getting back and forth in our conversations on Twitter, is that the N, minus, N equals one variable is the most important one to keep in mind. It may not be your path, right? It's good to take into consideration, okay, these people are recommending this, 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 and this, but I don't know if that really applies to me. Let me try a small version of it first, right? Let me go take one course. You know, I don't want to go get a degree yet because I don't want the $50,000 debt or $100,000 debt. Let me just see if this is for me, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And people aren't encouraged to even think along those lines because they're immediately told, oh, you better get your degree and you better do this and you better do that. And it's like, well, there's no rush yeah. to do any of this, yeah. right? Take your time. And, and a lot of people are successful without it and a lot of people are successful with it but the problem is we always highlight the people who are successful with it and we neglect and ignore the conversation of all the people who are completely broken because of the process um who went to that procedure and 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 what, what's really what's really fascinating about that is in a way it's sort of like a black swan right you trusted but you didn't verify that this is actually a good path for you and the day that reality reckons with you which is oh congratulations here's your degree and i don't know pick a theory of some sort that they that some school whatever you did and oh congratulations we can't hire you uh, we need you to serve coffee right that's a black swan event right there right your whole worldview just collapsed because nobody's going to hire you for anything it is other than serving coffee right so this is one of those instances where and you know it's a scam and the reason you know it's a scam is because a degree in, in, in computer science is exactly the same cost as a degree in history right right off the bat you're like no nah, those two things aren't the same there's no way they should cost the same and if every class costs the same something is wrong somewhere somebody's rent seeking and nobody's talking about this. I think Eric Weinstein, Weinstein, Weinstein. I'm, I'm really sorry, I forget how to pronounce his name, but it's not from the guy who's, you know, the pervert, but it's the other way. He was always emphasizing this, is that there's this idea that's being pushed uh, that everybody must get this education, but there's rent-seeking being had, right? There's all these degrees and fields that are being cropped up that don't make any sense, don't have any value, and all it's doing is really um, programming people emotionally to become bitter, resentful, angry types versus valuable members of, of society contributing. Because I know, I, I, what's funny, when I go to play volleyball on Friday nights, there's two plumbers and one electrician. And between the three of them, they make more money than the other two guys that I know who, one is a, uh, an accountant, pretty high level up accountant, and the other one's a doctor. And the two plumbers and the, and the electrician make more money than the doctor. Oh and my the, gosh, wow. Right? And, and I know awesome. this for a fact. It is. And, and here's what's interesting about that. I had a friend of mine whose um, house... There's a pipe burst in the middle of winter, and this happened like at 12 o'clock at night. So, you know, called me up, hey, you know, this happened. I'm like, oh, let me, I'll, I'll just come down. So I just jumped in the car. We came out to help. And everybody uh, um, uh, advertises 24-hour plumbing services. So that's how they get you. You Google it. 
call the office. Nobody picks up. Call the office. Oh, we're, we're only available till 8 p.m. I'm like, then why are you advertising 24-hour service? But here's what's interesting. After about eight or nine different Google searches and calls, the one guy who actually was 24 hours said, before I leave my house, I just want you to know it's going to be expensive. Well, well, there you have it, right? Pipe burst in the middle of the night. You don't really think about price at that point. You just want it to stop because the foundation of your house is now in jeopardy. So that's why plumbers make all that money because you only need them when you need them. And when you need them, they dictate the price, right? So right. that's what I found fascinating about that whole process. And the same thing with the electrician, right? Uh, electricity doesn't work in a building. Well, we have all these people. We have the salaries we're paying for them, and we need all this to work. So come down here, and whatever your fee is, it's the cost of doing business. So I found it fascinating that you know, and this seems always talking about the butcher and the you know the the, the plumber and the you know the electrician, all these guys who literally have skin in the game. They they earn their paycheck all the time, whereas the people who get these degrees and you know, social. I think the worst. Every single person that I've met that's a, that's a pure IYI that I've known has gotten a degree, has gotten a degree in political science. Every single one of them, and and, and you could within five minutes of speaking to them, you could tell them like this is an IYI to the nth degree, to the point where you can't even tell them they're an IYI. You're like, you know what? Great, good, good for you. <laughs> that's what you think. It Carry wouldn't on. be worth the conversation to, to try to tell them otherwise. Like, I mean, if you yeah. want to be a politician, you, you got to have that trait, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I've been talking to a couple of them, you know, just indirectly because I don't, you know, like you said, it's not worth the energy and effort to talk directly to them. But I always remind them of Nassim's quote, which is, if you want to be a philosopher king, start with being a king and then you can work your, work your way to be a philosopher. So if you want to be a politician, work your way to being successful at anything else in life first and then transition over. And then you'll have a lot more credibility than if you just became a politician right off the bat. Because... Uh, I don't know anybody who actually trusts any politician I know. I know some members who are local and you know in my area and I talk to them and I feel like I'm I'm talking to like a slithering salesman. You know, they'll just say whatever it is they want they think that they, I want to hear from them just to get me out of their hair because they have their next whatever event that they're focusing on. So that that vibe, you know, there's there's a certain vibe that comes off that type of person and and, and every IYI and I know without fail. And and again, this is a small sample set, so I'm not, you know, generalizing in any way, shape or form. But of the people that I know, uh, at least I know about 15 of them over my lifetime who are political science uh, degree holders, man, you drop them off in the corner of any street, uh, forget the jungle, just any street corner without their phone and wallet, and they'll be dead in 15 minutes because they couldn't find their way home. All right. So, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Um, we've had a great conversation. Is there anything else on anybody's mind that we didn't get to, top, uh, to touch on? Alex, did you, did you have anything else? No, not really. Um, I just wanted to add earlier um, about Germany. Uh, yes. They, they uh, half the year they do a practical, uh, whatever, their practical por portion. The other half of the year they do theoretical. So even though they go to university, they still, uh, it's still integrated with, you know, actual real world stuff that That's they'll great. work That's great. on. Yeah I, yeah, I have a lot of respect for the German education system. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's definitely more practical. Well, you know what? I'll I'll relay a funny story for you guys because when I was doing my um, um, mechanical engineering program, um, one of the things that we, you know, one of my professors was talking about. He said, you know, the way it works in Germany is before you can become an engineer, you have to put in five years of work as an apprentice before they let you go into engineering school. So the stuff that you're learning is actually directly related to the real world, as opposed to just learning a theory first. And he was telling a story about this is why engineering um, 
from the German standpoint, always stands to, 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 to hold up at the highest uh, level is because that is exactly how it works for them, for, from what I know. And a few of my friends in Germany that have discussed this have validated this. And I hope it's still the same, but it may have changed. But in regards to the way you become an engineer there first is practical followed by theoretical. And that way, the two tie together versus the way we do it everywhere else is theoretical first and then go try to get the, your practical experience. And it doesn't seem to work that well when you do it that way. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Ember, do you have anything else you want to you wanna touch on? Any other topics that are, uh, um, you know, dying to get out from your mind? <laughs> no, it was all good. It was, a, it was a good conversation today. Talking about hygiene and school and stuff like that. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. <laughs> all right. So, gentlemen, I do want to thank you for your time and your uh, contribution to the Risky po uh, Conversations podcast. Um, I will make sure that when it's up and running. Uh, do you guys want your Twitter handle on there? Because we'll we'll check it in so that they can find you afterwards if they're interested. Or do you guys yeah, just sure. want to keep it? Yeah. Okay. So I'll uh, I'll put sure. all that up, uh, and uh, we will uh, we'll we'll touch base online, and um, uh, we'll carry the conversations from here on there. Awesome. Great. Thanks for having okay. me. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yep. Bye. 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 Have a good day, all. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation you'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation, as long as it's open and honest where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening, be anti-fragile, and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way, by saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Amr Sadat signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.